0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. He did not start a church that he has not visited, people that he does not know except by reputation, and Paul's overarching desire was to come, as we looked at over the last couple of weeks, to come and to preach the gospel. So that it might bear fruit in the lives of the people there. It seems odd to want to preach the gospel to converted people, to Christians. But Paul understood what we understand is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just the A, B, and C of the Christian faith. It's not that which just leads you into the kingdom of heaven uh, by salvation. But it's that which also perfects you and makes you more and more like Christ. The continual application of those truths. The truths that say that you are worse in and of yourself than you want to believe that you are. But, in Christ, you are more loved than you ever dared dream or imagine simultaneously. That beautiful picture of what has transpired When Paul was teaching about the righteousness that comes by faith, the righteousness of God, which is given to us, imputed, big word, implanted within the life of the Christian, a righteousness that isn't our own, that we can't work up on our own, uh, that we can't develop through our good works, through our righteousness, through our legal actions. But it is this foreign and alien righteousness that is given to us. And all of our stuff. All of our sin and brokenness uh, and faults, they're given to Christ, imputed to him. And he took them, it says, on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the very righteousness of God himself. Now think about it. If you took that truth and daily and even moment by moment within the day, preached it to your own heart. That you were reminded of those vows that our new members just took. If I am a sinner justly deserving of the wrath and displeasure of God, but through the grace of Jesus Christ, I am now considered forgiven by Him. It would transform your human relationships. It would radically transform how you engage the people around you. Because you would recognize how can I withhold love from someone else if the God of all love has poured it into my life while I was a sinner, while I was at enmity with Him, while I was a rebel against Him? How could I not forgive someone else who has wronged me? But how could I not forgive them if I have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and He holds nothing against me? How could I not be generous To those around me with my life, with all that I have, with my wealth, with my time, uh, with my affections, uh, with me. How could I not be generous if I've preached the gospel of God's profound generosity to my heart in that day? You see how uh, Paul preaching the gospel to the church at Rome would bear fruit. And so we're moving along in that. And so we're going to begin to unpack this gospel message And this week we come to the large section of Scripture, the large section of this letter that begins in chapter 1 verse 18 and runs all the way to chapter 3 verse 20. And this is a section of Scripture that's entirely bad news. And I've broken it up into three sermons, so hope to see you next week. Because that's not how you break up a letter, but we're going to take it on in this way a little bit. And Paul is writing to say, unless you understand sin and wrath, this gospel makes no sense whatsoever. It is completely unintelligible to the human heart. And so today we are going to step into Weighty material, and I pray that God would bless our time by His Spirit. Let us ask Him to do just that. Father, as we come now to Your Word, we come with incredible reverence, we come with incredible deference, that we pray that we would doubt our doubts, that we would not hold our intellect above Your supreme mind. That we would come and that we would sit under your word. And that by your spirit you would teach us today. Father, thank you for preserving your word. And now giving it to us. May your spirit bless this, the reading and hearing of it. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 1. Picking up in verse 18. This is God's very word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. What Paul is doing in this section is he is explaining why we need a righteousness that comes by faith alone. Remember last week we talked about the becauses. That I am not ashamed. I want to preach the gospel to you in Rome because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation for all of those who believe and to the Jew first and to the Greek. Because it is the righteousness of God which is revealed to us by faith. Faith unto faith. Because now verse 18, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But Paul is beginning, not even beginning, he's continuing this argument of saying, listen, you need to have a righteousness which is given to you by God. You need to have a righteousness because you are unrighteous. And in your unrighteous condition, you are the objects of God's eternal wrath and divine judgment against your sin. He's building on this argument. He's telling us here why the gospel is necessary. And to do it, he announces the bad news. He gives the bad news about God's wrath upon the ungodly and the unrighteous. Now, this idea of wrath today is almost completely foreign to our culture. It is completely foreign to academia, that when you begin to speak to individuals about evil, at best they may be able to go back to 9-11 and say that that is an evil act. They may be able to pick up on some things uh, of bad, but at the end of the day, we have manipulated, we have argued, we have translated evil into acceptable behavior. At worst, it's an outlier. But for most, we would say, it's just unacceptable to speak in those terms. And the idea of wrath, oh my goodness. Some of you who are guests today uh, are going to walk away and go, ah, that hellfire and brimstone sermon. My goodness. And it's used in a pejorative sense. It's used negatively. That those who preach of it are unintelligent. They're simple-minded. They're unenlightened. But you see, Paul said, you can't understand the gospel at all. Christ's death on a cross makes absolutely no sense if there's no sin that is deserving of divine wrath. And so I'm sure there are some uh, who preach uh, poorly, uh, and I'm probably in that group of those who preach poorly about divine wrath and judgment, but to say that we shouldn't preach about it at all because it's upsetting because it may affect church growth, because folks won't come back. The point of the church isn't church growth. The point of the church is to be faithful to the truth of God's word and to believe that by proclaiming the entirety of God's word, that God will be faithful to bring many into himself. You see, we want to say that at the end of the day, love wins. At the end of the day, pulpits around the country and around the world are diminishing this idea of wrath so much so that they're saying at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You all get to go to heaven. I wish that was the truth. But it's not. That's at least not biblical truth. It's a wonderful notion. And so we create a God in our own image. A God who is loving and not wrathful. The wrathful God's Old Testament stuff, Bill. That's, that, that's the God who used that lovely uh, King James word, smite. You miss that word, don't you? And the Lord smote the Egyptians. The Lord smote the Assyrians. He was smitten by God and afflicted. We're New Testament Christians. We're enlightened. This is a God of love in the New Testament. Not all that heavy stuff over there. Well, folks, don't just bear with me, but engage fully today that we're going to be looking at what do we do with this wrath of God that is poured out on all mankind? What's our escape from it? For in this section, Paul is talking to those who are outside of a religious community He's speaking to those who would have come from a pagan uh, worldview, uh, a non-religious worldview, if you would. Next week, he begins to speak about religious folks. And the week after that, even more uh, of religious folks. So this morning, the first point that we're going to talk about is just that. What do we do with the wrath of God? What is this wrath of God? Think of it this way. In any ecosystem, there are some dark and sinister creatures within any ecosystem the predators, the, the ones that are difficult for us to manage in our own minds. Uh, we love to think of Aslan the lion or we love uh, to think of sweet and cuddly tigers uh, and things like that. But oh, we can't stand the picture of them chasing down the kind little antelope and eating them for dinner. And so we want to diminish the role of the top level alpha characters in any ecosystem. And remove them if we could. It would make just for a much more pleasant ecosystem. But what you do when you do that is you destroy the entire ecosystem. Many people try to apply that into the biblical ecosystem. And think that if I can just remove this idea, this archaic, uh, this primitive idea of wrath. This primitive idea of sin and punishment. Then I can have a palatable Christianity. Folks, what you do at that point is you destroy the entire thing, that it all holds together. So what do we do with the wrath of God? Well, the first thing that you need to understand is God's wrath is not incompatible with his love. God's wrath is not incompatible with his love. It is actually an outgrowth of his love. That you see the wrath of God, as John Stott wrote, uh, then is almost totally different from human anger. It does not mean that God loses his temper, flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in the moral conflict. A God and God is not neutral. On the contrary, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. His just judgment upon it. John Stott. What he is saying and what Paul is saying. Is that God's wrath. His hatred of evil. Is born out of his passion and love for his creation. And for humanity. Whoever that you love. All of you are in a loving relationship with somebody. When you see something in their life. That is destroying them either by their own volition, their own choice, or something that is beyond their power, but you see it in their life and it is destroying it, it is not hatred to be angry. It is not unloving to hate that in them. It is actually an outgrowth of your love. To say to someone you love, I see the actions that you're doing and they're going to destroy you if you keep doing it and I hate those actions. That it wells up within you something. Paul said, it is possible... To be angry and not sin. There is a righteous indignation that comes. Some of you wrestle with infirmities within your bodies. And loved ones with cancer or Alzheimer's. Or or other things that are happening. Whenever I hear of somebody else with cancer. It raises up within me an indignation towards that cancer. I hate it. The effect of the fall and a beautiful life. That is trying to destroy them. Or to see a beautiful mind of an individual gone. And they don't remember who they are. Or remember who who their loved ones are. And they're having to be tended to fully hand and foot. Love rages against that. It rises up within us an indignation about something that is going to destroy someone or something that we love. To say that we wouldn't be motivated in that way, to move in that way, would make us amoral. Not immoral, but amoral. That we are beyond it, that we are above it, that we don't care about those things. And if I said to you today that, oh, you're amoral, it's not a compliment and you wouldn't receive it as such. I'm going to use an illustration this morning from a sermon that I heard by Ligon Duncan, my systematic theology professor in seminary and former pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. He said there is this idea that wrath is incompatible with the idea of divine love. I'd say it is the other way around. Anger, righteous indignation is a function of goodness. Goodness is necessary to true love. Therefore, in order to truly love, you must be capable of righteous indignation against that which is a violation of it. Let me put it another way. A God who cannot be angry is a God who cannot love. In fact, if you cannot be angry against wrong, you are a person who cannot love. And he gives an illustration. And it is a very graphic illustration. And I will go ahead and let you know that on the front end. It is one that speaks of a practice within our own country that we have, for many, just come to terms with. And that is that of abortion. And this isn't the political Christian right sermon. But it is to present to you something that should raise within you a righteous indignation. Some of you here have experienced abortion in your own life. And I want you to hear this absolutely plainly from me. There is forgiveness for you in Christ Jesus. And in him you have already been forgiven. This isn't to shame you. And if you haven't been able to forgive yourself, let's talk. So, I can introduce you to a savior who already has. But hear these words from a nurse who testified in the Supreme Court case about partial birth abortion in the third term, that our country is moving towards and that in the world is accepted. Her name was Brenda Pratt Schaefer, and she wrote these words. Dr. Haskell, that was the abortion doctor, brought the ultrasound in. And he hooked it up so that he could see the baby. On the ultrasound screen, I could see the heartbeat. Dr. Haskell went in with the forceps and grabbed the baby's legs, pulled them down into the birth canal. He delivered the baby, his whole body, his arms, everything but his head. The baby's little fingers were clasping and unclasping, and his little feet were kicking. And then the doctor stuck the scissors in the back of his head. The baby's arms jerked with like a startle reflex, like a flinch, like a baby does when he thinks that he's going to fall. The doctor opened up the scissors and stuck a high-powered suction tube into the opening. The baby went completely limp, and I was totally unprepared for what I was seeing. Next, Dr. Haskell delivered the baby's head. He cut the umbilical cord. He delivered the placenta. And threw the baby in the pan along with the placenta and the instruments that he had used to perform the abortion. She goes on to say, that baby boy had the most perfect angelic face that I think I have ever seen in my life. I don't know what your reaction to that is, but there are a lot of words that come to mind. Revulsion. Indignation. Anger. Wrath. And I want to say that if we cannot be angry about infanticide, which this is, and is going on within our country and around the world, then we aren't loving. Because love produces within that person a righteous indignation when wrong is perpetrated. And, folks, that's just wrong. It's not okay. We could give example after example after example. That's just a big ticket one. But what about watching in the life of an individual who thinks that a certain behavior or pattern of life is okay? Or as Paul would say, gossip. That one's okay. I mean, everybody gossips. Maliciousness. An unforgiving heart. Disobedience to parents. That's one that gets me. Lisa used to get frustrated with me because I'd see a child being disobedient to their parents and it would raise in me a frustration deep down to go with that child is learning that as they can be disobedient to their parents and disrespectful to their heavenly father and their heavenly mother, how will they ever understand how to be respectful and obedient to their heavenly father? It's not okay. And so this should raise up within us a righteous indignation. And we have to believe that we serve a God whose heart not only breaks, but is inflamed with anger against evil that's perpetrated within the world. For if God's heart is not inflamed in this way, then He's not a God that I would serve. For God says that His wrath is poured out against these things. Oh, my friends, don't fall into the trap of thinking That you can have the good news without the bad news. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you can even have an apprehension of what the love and grace of God means without an understanding of what your sin deserves. God is beckoning you to wrestle with the deep and heavy things. And for some of you, you're going, I just wanted to come to church and feel good today. Folks, the good news is coming. Well, the good news is actually right here. You serve a God. Who loves humanity so much that he wouldn't let it die in its sin. But that he sent his son Christ to take on that wrath. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But God is not amoral. He is not immoral. He is passionate. You see, God's love and his wrath are not incompatible. But they are together God's wrath is also progressive in its nature. You see in verse 24, 26, and 28, that therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. What is happening there is part of God's wrath we think oh my goodness if you cuss lightning if you speed judgment if I do something wrong heaven opens up and judgment comes down God's wrath is going to descend on me it is so much more sinister than that if you would he said this is what his wrath looks like you want to go that way you you want to go on with your life without me That you want to follow your passions, you want what you want when you want it, and you want to have absolute disregard with me, or you want to create me in the image of a butler or a maid who will serve your every need, I'll let you go. That's his judgment. People are concerned about our country. Are we under the judgment of God that God is going to do something to strike our country or to strike another country? He already is. In letting us go the way that we want to go. That's judgment. Because he's saying, I'll let your passions guide you. I'll let you go and to do what you want to do. Tim Keller wrote this. God gave them over to the strongest desires of their hearts, their passions. The worst thing God can do to you, the most just form of punishment God could possibly give you is to give you over to the strongest desires of your hearts. In other words, let your wishes come true. That's the worst thing God could possibly do and the most fair thing he could ever do. Parents, if you don't love your kids, well, parents, if you want to judge your kids, if you want them to experience judgment, let them do whatever they want to do. That's actually judgment, it's not love. We live in a society, by the way, where parents, you're, so we, we, are so terrified of our children that we think to love them is to allow them to go do whatever they want to do. Kids, hear this about your parents when they stop your passions that are leading you away from a relationship with Christ is because they absolutely love you. Not because they hate you. And they're trying to pull you back because they know your passions will lead you somewhere where you do not want to go. You may think you do. But it's not where you want to go ultimately. And God says that's what his wrath is like. So what's this wrath against? We know what it's, kind of, know what it's like. It's not incompatible with his love. Uh, it is progressive in its nature. But what is the wrath of God against? What is he wrathful against? For the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Those words ungodliness and unrighteousness, two different words, ungodliness, uh, mainly means an ungodliness of vertical, that it is his wrath against the disdained for him. It is the vertical relationship. Uh, It is saying uh, of the worship of other things and the care of other things uh, in that way and against all unrighteousness, which is the outworking of that ungodliness towards one another, that there is a vertical and a horizontal. And he says within this context that all of humanity is without excuse Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. God says that he, in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And so in verse 20, they are legal language without excuse. Excuse. Paul uses legal language of Rome. And he says they would stand without excuse because God has made known to them everything that needs to be known. The creations cry out for the existence of God. And it says that man works hard. The word suppress is to hold it down or press it down. And within the human heart, we know that we are created by God. We know that there's a creator. You stand on the beach in this glorious environment that we are in, and you see the sun rise in the morning. You see the waves coming. You see the dolphins frolicking. You see the the beauty of it. God says, you know that I exist. And our our natural inclination is, go, yeah, but what about the person in Mongolia uh, in the early 4th century who didn't hear the Gospel? They can't surely be held accountable to God. Paul says, yes, they can. Because all of humanity suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. And they are without excuse. Now folks, you're going to have to wrestle with that one. I don't have time to unpack it today. But you're going to have to wrestle with that one. And great minds and great people uh, wrestle with that truth. Read C.S. Lewis in The the Last Battle. He wants to believe that maybe somehow that the people that cross the sea are going to be able to have salvation. Somehow. Because this is so difficult for the human emotion, but that all of humanity is without excuse and that all of humanity worships something else. If you're not worshiping God, you will worship something else. Verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You go, Bill, I don't have anything like that on my mantle. No idols at home. Well, idolatry is inevitable. Idolatry says that you will worship Worship something. And if you're not worshipping the king. If you're not worshipping the true God. Then you are worshipping something. Again from Tim Keller. If you love anything more than God. If you rest your security. In anything more than the providence and wisdom. And sovereignty of God. If your imagination is captured by anything more than the greatness of God. If your value is rooted in anything more than the grace and love of God. If you love anything more than God. And you do. You are looking to a created thing to give you what only God can possibly give you. Therefore, you have set up an idol. So what we need to do is identify those idols. Find those things that we are serving and giving glory to other than God. And part of our role within the world today is to help the world identify those things. And then to begin to dismantle them. And to replace them with the true image of the true God. For them to worship. And to see that he would meet all of their deepest needs and longings. And fulfill all of the passions of their hearts. You see this wrath of God. That it makes all humanity without excuse. Because all humanity is worshiping something else by suppressing the truth of God. It says it's against all ungodliness and all wickedness. Now you're ready for the sermon on social ills, right? Boy. Boy. Bill, can't wait for Bill. I've heard about it this week. Uh, I've been encouraged about all these things. Here's my response. The issue of homosexuality is listed within the context of malicious behavior, of gossip of slander, of disconcern for parental rights, of all of these things. Do I believe that God set in place one man, one woman in a heterosexual monogamous relationship as the divine way of life? Yes, I do. Do I highlight homosexuality as something greater than anything else? Absolutely not. For what Paul is saying here is before you go attacking those folks, deal with your gossip. Before you head out to picket and to stand and to do all of these things, make sure, make sure that you deal with your foolishness and your faithlessness. And your ruthlessness. And your disobedience. And your pride. And your boastfulness. And all of these things. We love to stand against something. But folks, let me encourage you. Deal with your heart first. And then let's go out and deal with the things. It doesn't mean that they have to be mutually exclusive. We can do them simultaneously. But let's deal with our own hearts. It's hard to say... God's going to judge those folks. Did you hear what Susie did this week? Can you believe what Bill did? I mean, I'm not gossiping. I'm just letting you know something. Now, no one else knows this. I was, I was asked not to share, but I, you're a confidant. You do realize that when you do that, you're gossiping. And Paul says, the wrath of God stands against gossip. It stands against malicious behavior. It stands against all of those things. It opposes everything that is opposed to To him. Have a good week. (laughs) We'll see you next Sunday. Wouldn't that be horrible? So, how do we escape? If God, as a loving, passionate God, and is so upset with His creation because of the entrance of evil and the fall, and it's there, and His righteous indignation and His wrath has to be poured out against all of those who would stand in opposition to Him and all of humanity in their natural state would stand against Him, how in the world do we get out from under His wrath? You've got to read ahead a little bit. Chapter 3. Look at verse 21 to 26. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think we've just covered that. And are justified by his grace. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over the former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus do you see it God didn't just say, I won't be wrathful in order to save. He said, my wrath has to be satisfied. And it will be satisfied for his children, his elect, for his that he has given to Christ. That Christ's blood covers them. That word propitiation, don't move past it. It is a word that says covering And that the only way to escape the wrath of God is to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a word that brings in the images of the pitch that was around the ark of Noah, that they covered the ark in this pitch and it kept out the waters of God's divine wrath that Moses placed in a basket, had this pitch, this propitiation put around him and it kept him from the wrath of God in the waters and protected him from that. It is the image that the only way to stand before a holy and a just God one day is to be absolutely fully and completely covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because then the wrath as it's coming towards you sees Christ and it is not just repelled by Christ it is fully absorbed in him. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane wept and sweated blood because He knew what He had to face. He knew what I had to face. And He said, Bill, I'll take your place. Just trust in Me. Believe in Me and I'll cover you. Here's the other side of that, folks. If you are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you will one day stand before an indignant and holy God and have to deal with his righteous anger all on your own. And hope against hope that you are a good enough southern boy who grew up and his mama was a choir director and he went to church and we did this and we said yes ma'am and we said thanks before dinner. And that you're a good sweet southern woman and that you just came to church and that you just were wonderful and made the best pound cakes in the world, and you were as nice as butter to everybody who was around. And God's going to say, not enough. Run to Christ. Let him be the just and the justifier in your life. If I see one of my sons or someone that I love, Standing on the edge of a cliff and they're about to jump off. I will do everything in my power to pull them back. Even to the point of giving my own life. Folks, we look around in a world and in a culture that is standing on the precipice to fall over into a wrathful relationship with a holy God. And we stand and we look at them and we judge them and we critique their behavior. We should be running to them. We should be running to them with the message of God's grace saying, come back. Don't go where your heart is telling you to go. I know your heart's telling you to go there. I know it, but don't trust your heart. Come find Christ and be covered by him. That's our message, isn't it? Isn't that why we exist as a church to proclaim that message? Let Christ be your covering, the just and the justifier. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are not ah moral. Thank you that you are not stoic. And that the things in our lives do not just glaze by you, but that they hit even into the heart of our Father. And you were so moved by the fall that even before the creation of the world, the gospel was born. And it was born out when Christ came and hope was given that we could escape. The wrath that is to come. And it will come. And we will find our hiding place in Christ. I pray for those here today. That they would wrestle with this truth. That we would wrestle with these truths. And that we would run to Christ. And find our hope. And find our life. And then celebrate with unbelievable joy. The amazing grace that we have found. That we were once lost and now we've been found. We were once under wrath and now we are under the kindness and the love and the care of a heavenly father. That Christ stands and he says your chains are gone. And you've been set free. To him be the glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song together.